Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing for Alberta on October 5th, 2021. We are live streaming from the traditional and ancestral territory of many people. We are grateful to live and work in Alberta, a province on the traditional and ancestral territory of 48 different First Nations and the unceded homeland of the Métis Nation. Today's conversation is being shared in ASL. To ensure access to completely accurate information, closed captioning will be uploaded after the live stream is complete. This conversation for the public is being shared live on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. The Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing is a regular panel of doctors and experts. We will endeavor to bring timely, accurate updates on the COVID-19 crisis in Alberta and take questions from the media. The views of our panelists are their own and do not represent any institutions they may be affiliated with. We have collectively gathered here as concerned Albertans attempting to ensure that everyone in the province has access to as much information concerning COVID-19 in Alberta as possible. As always, we will start things off with a brief update on the COVID-19 situation in Alberta. Thank you everyone for joining us. Today our update will be provided by Dr. Vipond. Welcome Dr. Vipond. Hey everybody. Um just finished listening to the majority of the, um, the, the the government presser, and I'm going to speak a little bit to that uh, afterwards. But um, I guess I'll just say that this is the first time in a long time where I felt like they've started to take this seriously, and that is heartening because we need to take this seriously. Um, so there's been a number of measures announced, which I'm pretty excited about. There's still a lot that we need to talk about that are missing. Um, but to have a, a large percentage of the government there talking about the seriousness of what we face is good. So that's the start. Um, Michelle, do you have the slides uh, ready to go? All right. So um, cases per day. This is a bit unusual. We have this massive drop in our cases per day. Mondays, uh, Sundays, and Mondays tend to be our slowest days. Um, so uh, it's not. Um, it's unusual in the in the amount that it's dropped, um, but also I think heartening because this seems to be the continuation of a trend. So cases yesterday on Monday, 715, that's a 44% decrease over last week's 1277. Next slide, please. We have uh, the seven day average uh, dropping significantly 11% uh, week over week from uh, 1584 to 1407 today. Next slide, please. Then the positivity is also continuing to trend downwards at 8.79, uh, last week being 11.61. So those have all been uh, extremely positive, and I'm feeling good about that. It means we are going into the right direction. Next slide, please. Um, the, the next concern is, is hospitalizations and ICUs. As you can see, both of them have plateaued um, pretty dramatically. They are basically solidly flat. Maybe ICU trending a little bit downwards. So um, the, the last day we have for inpatients is yesterday. Uh, those tend to be revised upwards. And um, the, the number yesterday is 842. Uh, and that's very similar to what it was last week, which means we um, we continue to be very flat as far as uh, inpatient hospitalizations go. So that's a up point uh, up eight patients. ICUs uh, are trending lower, which is good, down five from eight two fifty seven to two fifty two. Next slide, please. 
And that's sorry, that's the ICU. So you can see the trending downward there. And uh, the next slide just shows the entire pandemic. And you can see how much bigger the fourth uh, intentionally cruel wave is, how much bigger it is than the two previous waves. Next slide, please. Uh, happy to report, very, very happy to report no new hospitalizations today uh, for pediatric uh, patients. So um, there was, uh, we didn't have an update yesterday, but there were six over the weekend uh, hospitalizations, including two in the ICU. So this is a, a, a nice breather from that. Next slide, please. Um, 26 deaths. Remember, there are only 21 um, that were announced over the weekend. Uh, so 26 in a, announced in a 24-hour period. That's not unusual. Weekends tend to have lower reporting. And as you probably are aware, and you can look in the dates on the side there, that the deaths announced yesterday aren't from yesterday. They're uh, deaths that have been announced, uh, that have, uh, are being reported yesterday from previous times. Next slide, please. And this is just showing the deaths uh, over the course of the pandemic, you can see that we far outstripped the deaths from the third wave, which speaks to um, the power of the Delta virus. Um, I suspect will be very similar to the second wave. It looks like we're lower now, but that's only because there's that lag in reporting. And so um, we should be approaching similar uh, levels of, um, of mortality as we had in that second wave. Not good. Next slide, please. And then the, the, the characteristics you can see by far five to 11 being uh, still the, the largest uh, group being affected, but everything's trending downwards. Um, and that is really good to see. Next slide, please. Or is that it? No, should be one more, maybe. Oh yeah, there we go. So, and just pointing out that this continues to be the rural wave um, uh, with, the vast, uh, uh, the highest cases per capita being in the three rural areas and both Edmonton and Calgary trending lower. Um, it's hard to know what's going on in the rural areas. You can see the purple line curving downward, but the other two, aside from yesterday, the other two seem to still be increasing. In fact, have uh, on the Monday reporting had the highest case rate uh, of the fourth wave, probably of the pandemic. Uh, but definitely of the fourth wave uh, uh, happening over the weekend. So I don't think either the central or the north uh, zones are out of the out of the um, out of the the uh, pandemic depths yet. Next slide, please. Oh, and I think that's it. So you can uh, get rid of the slides. I'll just chat a little bit about the announcements. Um, in some ways. <laughs> I heard the, the government giving themselves a pat on the back for all the great things that they're doing now, that they're stepping up to the plate. It kind of reminds me, do you ever hear those stories like where the whale gets like trapped in fishing gear and then humans come and they rescue the whale and they cut off the fishing gear and yay, the humans saved the day. But the whale never would have been in trouble if it wasn't for the humans putting the fishing gear out there in the first place. And that's kind of what I feel like that the Alberta is that whale um, we're being rescued by our government from a tragedy of, of their own making. And this is indeed the cruelly, uh, intentionally cruel wave. Um, so great that they're doing stuff. I wish we never had to walk down that path. if wishes were horses. Um, so some of the things that I just want to recognize. Um, so we're, we're finally getting into the area where we're not actually being completely insane, which, which I love that, but we're still not, um, completely sane either yet. So there are there are some things that need to be done. 
Um, let's celebrate the fact that uh, they are starting contact tracing in schools. Uh, again, that was always a very strange decision to just let schools be out there. And in doing so, they actually said the word asymptomatic. And, and this may seem a rather weird comment, but to this point, the government uh, and public health in general has been very loath to um, recognize the role of asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic spread. And so, uh, yeah, kudos to them for, for ticking that off the box. Um, outdoor restrictions being limited to 20. Uh, I'm pretty thrilled by that as well. Um, 200, yeah, in the middle of a, a crisis seems uh, a bit weird. Um, so the contact tracing, just pointing out that they said that they're only limiting the contact tracing to schools. If you're making the interviews, why are you not talking about extracurricular activities and other sources of infection? It, it's a weird stipulation that they're not looking at that. I don't get it. Um, and still no K to three masking. Masks work. Masks are really, really important. In fact, masks may be, mask mandate may be a large part of why our curve it's is bending right now, and yet they're still denying the protection of masks to the to the kindergarten to three, uh, grade three um, ages. Um, and I think that's all I have to to say. Um, I'm going to turn it back to Michelle for our panel. Oh, you know what? I have one more thing to say, Michelle. If that's okay. <laughs> we um we decided we we're going to have this this panel specifically on rural healthcare capacity, um, and up until about like. 12 hours ago, we didn't really have a panel. So I reached out to a bunch of people. And I said, I, especially nurses, do, do you have anything you want to say? Um, and uh, I had a couple of people reach out with some statements. And if it's okay, I know uh, there's a lot to go through today. Um, uh, but I just think in honoring um, my request for those statements, I think I, I just want to read out uh, one from somebody in the North region. What does COVID, what does the COVID pandemic mean for rural healthcare at the moment? We hear talk about the busy ICUs and no doubt our urban counterparts are dealing with an insane increase in workload at the moment. With the ever increasing numbers and even the premier saying that rural Northern Alberta is the least vaccinated and causing the spread in this wave, it's safe to say that rural sites have never been more overrun. Rural sites continue to have our acuity increasing. We used to be sites that would stabilize patients and send out to a bigger center. Grand Prairie or Edmonton for the Northern sites. It used to be easy to get an accepting bed and a healthcare team, but each day that passes with no fire break and soft restrictions at best, only further the difficulties in getting patients sent out. Rural sites are increasingly required to monitor patients that we would be typically send out because there are simply no spaces to send them to. We were being told to hold off on intubation, patient depending of course, and with patient safety at the forefront. We would never withhold life-saving treatment. So that, they can, so that they can be flown to Edmonton or Calgary and the ER ICU teams can decide how to best manage their airways. I can only speculate that this is because of bed space and ventilator capacity. If a patient is lucky, quote unquote, enough to warrant immediate intubation, they are always accepted to a bigger hospital. Rural sites simply do not have the equipment or expertise for managing intubated patients. Even with the acceptance of care from larger hospital due to acuity, there is the problem of transport. These patients are almost always flown down due to the remote locations of some of the rural sites. But because every rural site is now having multiple COVID or other traumas happening, every site is looking for transport, which means that the air ambulance paramedics are spread extremely thin around the province. 
This also means that the patients have to be managed in the rural ER departments until they can be transferred out. Often, this means that the patients are intubated and can wait up to five to six hours in the ER for transport. Intubated patients require a high level of monitoring, meaning one nurse has to stay with the patients. When you're running an ER department with only two staff members, typically an RN and an LPN, taking one staff out to care for a patient for five to six hours can affect patient care for everyone else. Not to mention the extra stress of your already burned out staff members. Rural staff sometimes spend the entire shift hoping that no other critical patients come in because there are no extra staff to help. To understand the strain on rural healthcare is also to understand that in itself is a specialty in medicine. We are asked to be jacks of all trades, feeling like masters of none. I have participated in more intubations in the last two months than any of my other nursing years put together. We continue to have high acuity procedures and skills be required, many of which before this wave we seldom had to perform. We used to have locum MDs come from city hospitals in Alberta or BC and have them call for the IV team or the code team. We used to laugh that it was only two members, staff members on shift as every team that you would need in the ER. Now it is becoming overwhelming to be the airway team and the trauma team and the code team. We have one respiratory therapist, but they are only available during the week. We have no coverage for weeknights or weekends or nights, which lead to nurses becoming the airway team for these patients. We also have no screeners overnight in the hospital or registration staff, and these duties also fall back on the nursing staff, which in a regular sense would be okay, but with the increase in extremely sick COVID and non-COVID patients add just another duty to our staff. We lack the important equipment necessary to look after these critical patients. We sometimes feel like we are channeling MacGyver with specialized procedures that patients may need before being sent out to larger hospitals. Staff are being pushed to the edge of what they can work because there are so many vacant shifts throughout the week, which makes dealing with crisis after crisis that much more difficult. Staff are tempted not to answer the calls from the staffing office to pick up yet another shift because we simply can't give it anymore. We know it leaves the team short, but we don't have the float pool to pull from for staff. We have our staff on medical leaves or simply move to onto other hospital and even provinces because of the increased stress due to COVID and other health issues. Adequate staff continues to be a large problem in many rural sites and it is exacerbated by this ongoing pandemic. I wonder how many of us will be left if we ever tackle the, the fifth wave. Um, I'm just gonna skip to the end because I'm aware of time, but I will, um, do screenshots of this letter and post it on my Twitter feed and make sure it gets on the Protect Our Province Alberta Twitter feed as well. The last part I wanted to share has to do with mental health and coping. We are continuing to see extremely sick patients and each shift is simply crisis management from start to finish. The jokes between coworkers have gotten darker. Stoic old school nurses are breaking down in the break room because we have dealt with so many sick patients at once for days on end, which is stressful in its own right. When many of us have heard that a nurse has taken her life due to increased stress, etc., we understood exactly how that felt. We don't have robust mental health services or options. They are also overwhelmed and there is a stigma to healthcare workers accessing mental, accessing mental health services. We continue to debrief with each other and check in on coworkers after especially, especially crazy shifts. As the pandemic is allowed to proliferate by relaxed restrictions, it becomes harder and harder to do. Without any kind of help or firebreak to address the ongoing COVID crisis, it is hard for many of my colleagues to see that COVID will end or find any light at the end of the tunnel. So I just want to thank that healthcare worker for stepping up and being brave. Um, it's very, very hard for nurses in particular to advocate because of the contracts they have with Alberta Health Services. And that's why we've 
decided to make this uh, nurse uh, anonymous. And um, but I can assure you that uh, the words that she say are accurate and true, and that she truly represents um, one view of rural healthcare in the north. So back to you, Michelle. Thank you very much, Dr. Vipond. And on behalf of everybody at Protect Our Province, Alberta, I would also like to echo Dr. Vipond's sentiments. Thank you for sharing your experience with us. And thank you for finding some type of hidden reserve, wonderful anonymous nurse in the North to keep joining everyone who needs you every single day. Um, I'm going to bring up all of our panelists now into this conversation, two of whom, one of whom is Dr. Vipond, another one who is a regular contributor with Protect Our Province, Alberta, Dr. Asadi, and three folks um, to have a conversation with us about the disparity that is happening in our non-really large urban centers. Um, I'm going to bring up Danielle and Dr. Vandermeer and Holly, and I am going to ask you all to introduce yourself since it's the first time you've been with us. Um, maybe we could start with Danielle. There we go. Uh, well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Danielle Larrabee. Uh, I'm a registered nurse. Uh, I actually live in Slave Lake. I'm speaking to you uh, from Slave Lake right now. So a uh, very rural, small community in northern Alberta. I've been an RN for almost 25 years and a public health nurse for most of it. Uh, but I'm currently first vice president for United Nurses of Alberta, which represents over 30,000 registered nurses and RPNs from across the province, many of who are rural. Of course, I'm also a mom of a couple, so I uh, definitely um, bring some of that rural experience lens to the conversation today. So thanks for having me. Holly, how about you? Hi, my name is Holly Chapney. I am a respiratory therapist. I work out of the Red Deer Regional Hospital in Red Deer, and I have been an RT for 17 years. Um, 10 years here and seven years in Lethbridge. So I'm just a regular regional kind of girl. And Dr. Vandermeer. Hi guys, I'm Parker Vandermeer. I'm a locum physician that works primarily throughout the North Zone, but occasionally in Central Zone as well. So I see a little bit of a flavor of all the different places uh, depending on the location. Right now I'm in Peace River. Before I move on to our first question, Dr. Vandermeer, what is a locum? Yeah, so locum physician, probably the easiest corollary for it is like a substitute teacher. So in most times, uh, if another physician wants some time off, they'd find a locum physician to cover their practice. During the COVID era, uh, it hasn't so much been that as it's been going in and filling in at sites that would have to shut down otherwise. So a lot of the time I'm not necessarily covering for someone right now, more as just being an extra body to cover shifts. Thank you very much. I appreciate that clarification. Um, before we start with our first question, I just wanted to make everybody aware that around 5.15 or so, Dr. Wing Lee will be joining us as well to offer her perspective on some of the school measures that were introduced today. Um, but to start us off with our rural conversation, um, Holly, this is the first time we've had the opportunity to have a respiratory therapist with us on the program. Um, and I've noticed a really big uptick in the media mentioning RTs, um, but not always with a great deal of context. I know from my own experience, the only um, 
sort of interaction I ever had with one was when my daughter was first diagnosed with asthma and we were working through sort of how to put her in a context that was manageable so she could be a happy, healthy member of society. Um, but I feel like that is not what 99.9% of the job is, especially right now, and especially in a zone that is currently being hit so hard. Um, so for the folks at home, could you talk us all through a little bit about what that is, what it's like, what you're managing right now? Yeah, sure. So traditionally, respiratory therapists care for patients um, from neonate all the way to end of life care. And at a regional site like Red Deer, we are comfortable working in all areas of the hospital. So the emergency department, the intensive care unit, the neonatal intensive care unit, and the various um, wards. Um, I have always worked critical care my whole life, but there can be respiratory therapists who work in the community and they help with asthma teaching and kind of what you were describing. Um, critical care in Red Deer, for instance, we would be a part of the intubation teams that was mentioned earlier. And um, we um, manage life support, so the ventilators. We insert and maintain breathing tubes for intubation. We maintain and insert arterial lines for blood pressure monitoring and for getting lab specimens. Um, but for the last 19 months, if you have critical care experience, you're most likely being funneled into intensive care because our, num our ventilator numbers are just staggering. So if you know how to operate a ventilator, that is where you are needed most. And so that's where you will find most respiratory therapists in a hospital today. You're muted. It's because I was being such a respectful person of not having anything happening in the background. Um, a follow-up question on that, Holly, that I would love everybody else's perspective and opinion on um, as well. As a regular human who is just hearing a lot about all of these things, but not actually able, fortunately, thankfully, not seeing and experiencing this in my current everyday existence, I would look... Help me, all of us, understand that process of ventilation, what your mission as a respiratory therapist is in that, how that moves over to our emergency, or like when that happens in an emergency room, Dr. Viponder, Dr. Vanderbeer, what is your role in keeping that support happening? And um, Danielle, same with from the nursing perspective, we keep talking about essentially, I keep hearing that pretty much everyone in ICU right now is on a ventilator. And so we've had some time to talk about rotating patients and that sort of thing, but not about how everyone comes together to keep that happening and what is actually happening. Do you want me to go first? <laughs> okay, great. Um, so our thresholds for what we're comfortable with, with hypoxia, so not enough oxygen in your blood, have really been lowered. So traditionally, we are uncomfortable with anything less than 90. Um, but with COVID patients, they are quite hypoxic and require a lot of oxygen to maintain 
um, what we would normally think is healthy oxygenation. So, um, but we, over this last surge, we were kind of forced to um, stretch people's time that they spend on a medical ward with a lot of oxygen. So it's typically done by a machine that can deliver um, very warm, heated, high flow oxygen to the tune of 55 to 60 liters per minute. And um, you can adjust how much oxygen they're getting, but traditionally they're getting 100%. And then we have to add a simple mask on top of that. And we might let people sit like that for a day until they can no longer oxygenate on the maximum amount of oxygen we can provide. And then um, in red deer, they get transferred to our intensive care unit and they get um, intubated, a breathing tube put in them. They get stabilized in central lines and art lines and then they start their ICU journey. Is that what you were looking for? Yes, yes, I was. And now I would love to hear from the other folks on our panel about what that, how, how this increase, how this tsunami, how this massive wave is affecting the way you deliver care. Maybe I'll just start by saying, because we're focusing on rural healthcare, how privileged I feel to be in an, uh, an emerge and in the in the urban areas. And I'd love to hear the contrast from my colleagues because I walk into work and there's 30 nurses and a fully functional lab and a whole X-ray department, and we have 24-hour CTs and a, a radiologist live reading our our, our imaging um, and and right now our volume is actually kind of on the low side similar to the first wave so patients aren't even waiting that long to be seen and um i'm just curious if anybody wants to compare and contrast their experience to, to my experience maybe dr vandermeer yeah i can jump in uh definitely depending on the site you're going to be faced with a lot of different challenges rural sites of course can vary a fair bit in size uh intubation is something that for the most part, you have a lot less comfort uh, on in rural communities. Uh, and that might just be an experience. You haven't done it that often. It's smaller team sizes. Uh, and at the end of the day, we just lack the equipment that we need in many rural sites. So the ventilator, which is the machine, which actually does the breathing once someone is intubated, uh, they often aren't available in rural Alberta. So what that ultimately means is if we need to intubate someone, we're going to need another person uh, there with a the bag, basically breathing for this individual uh, as they won't be able to breathe for themselves anymore until they're able to be transferred to a site with a higher level of care. Uh, and that can potentially be hours. So when you have sites that you may only have one physician and two nurses or one physician and one nurse on, all of a sudden you're losing one of those two people. Uh, and it's really just impossible to sustain a functioning emergency department when that, once that has happened. At some of the larger sites, you have more staff members to assist you're still gonna have those comfort issues just from an experience. You're still gonna have those issues of likely not having the proper equipment. Uh, and the last big barrier that we really face is these patients are people who are often quite critically ill. Uh, they're people that would be typically seen in a larger center with a lot more resources, a lot more staff, a proper ICU. Uh, we're having to get them to that level of critical care in these small communities when we are two, three, four, 700 kilometers away so we always have to have in the back of our mind of, okay, well, how soon am I going to call and how many hours is it going to be to get this patient from High Level or Spirit River or Peace River or where have you 
uh, to a larger center, knowing that you don't have the proper equipment to begin with, and now you need to stabilize this person for a four or five hour transport on top of that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to to understand the context of, of particularly smaller rural hospitals. And Dr. Vandermeer referenced the fact that it's not unusual to have only one or two uh, RNs um, on staff in a shift, which means that, um, you know, babies keep coming and uh, people still have heart attacks or have asthma attacks or, um, you know, get sick for any other number of reasons that are coming in um, while also dealing um, with COVID. And then layer that on top of the fact that um, rural Alberta has had um, staff shortages and retention issues um, for many, many, many years. Uh, and COVID has exacerbated that, um, which has meant that, you know, services are, are being shut down, beds are being shut down. Um, there um, are a lot of very overwhelmed, very overtired nurses who uh, and other healthcare workers who are just um, doing their best to to support their colleagues and their teammates and and their community. And and that's the other part of it is um, when you're talking about a small town, um, no healthcare worker exists kind of separate from the people who are coming from their doors. They're usually um, you know people they went to school with or that they their kids went to school with and. Um, it's um, uh, uh, a very emotional, challenging time for, for many of them who are seeing um, a lot of very sick people that they know uh, coming through the doors and having to, to support them, um, you know, in, in terms of, of providing that support. And I, oh, the other thing I wanted to add was they aren't also just only doing nursing uh, a lot of the time is that um, it's pretty typical that unit clerks and housekeeping will only be there for certain hours. So they might be doing the screening as they come in the door, doing the registration for the patient in the in the system to, to um, admit them into eMERGE or whatever. Um, they're also grabbing them the snack, you know, calling the lab, maybe doing a little bit of physio. Um, and um, so they're, they kind of are doing a little bit of, of everything with a lot less resources as uh, Dr. Vandermeer uh, talked about. So while there might not be um, certainly uh, ICUs and there's not ventilation happening um, in many of our small rural communities, um, a lot of those communities have triple or quadruple um, the rate of active COVID cases right now compared to uh, compared to our urban centers of Calgary um, and Edmonton, and it's uh, creating uh, a lot of challenges. You're muted. I'm curious about the risk of burnout. Um... I mean, we're, we're seeing, certainly feeling that in the urban areas, but if we lose like two nurses, that's like 1% of our nursing population. And if you lose two nurses or Holly, God forbid, an RT, I'm sure you're, you're extremely specialized where you work. Um, what would that do to your systems? And, and is, is that fear a real fear? Dr. Parker, and then... Sure. Uh, I was just going to say, uh, it certainly is a huge issue uh, in rural communities as well. And uh, we don't have the staff to fill those pools. So the reality is when we have people who are calling in sick, when we have people that are just burned out and, and can't pick up an extra shift, uh, especially when you take into uh, context the fact that we've already had shortages for years, like predating COVID, uh, the reality is inpatient beds close, shifts go uncovered, 
you have, you know, LPNs and healthcare workers kind of doing tasks that would not be in their typical purview. Uh, there's a reason we've had a lot of emergency departments, particularly in North Stone, needing to close. And sometimes it's physician shortages, sometimes it's nursing shortages. But at the end of the day, you can't operate a hospital without people in it to work. Uh, so when those people are missing from the team, the colleagues pick up the slack as they're able to. And when eventually people are too burned out to do that, it, it is closures that we see. Yeah, well, and, and I would certainly uh, echo all those sentiments and add that what we're seeing is a lot of presenteeism. So the idea that despite not being um, mentally or physically well, people are coming to work anyways, because there's just nobody else to do it. So um, the pressure uh, to ensure that there's somebody there to support their teammates and to support their communities um, means that that many people are, are going to work despite being unwell, which I uh, could have serious long-term consequences for them uh, and, and their well-being. And I'm very concerned about uh, what the long-term implications are going to be for many of these people and how long they can sustain uh, doing so. Holly, do you have any um, comments on that? I, I guess I feel quite lucky. We're a bit like the referring centre for the whole entire central zone. And so I, we don't have to worry about if there's going to be a respiratory therapist on because there's more than one of us. Um, that being said, with our acuity and our patient numbers, we are the little engine that could in the central zone and we are forced to do more with less, just like our counterparts everywhere. And, um, you know, I it's we share the same sentiments, you know, staff are coming to work because they care about their coworkers more than they care about helping patients now. I'm gonna ask one more question then I turn it back over to Michelle. Um, and this is for whoever wants to answer. It's, um, I think it's, it's not a secret that um, the rural areas have the highest levels of uh, non-vaccination. There could be multiple reasons for that, including um, access to vaccines, but I think generally the feeling is is that there's probably also a little bit more of anti-government, anti-science um, sentiment out there, and I'm wondering if that has translated into any negative healthcare worker patient interactions, and and how you guys are managing that. Yeah, I'd say particularly in the fourth wave, I've really noticed it where there's uh, an anger almost from a lot of people. Uh, if you even say the C word, uh, you often will get glares from some people. I've had quite a few patients who, you know, they have a positive COVID test, they have symptoms and everything, and they're still quite angry with me for even saying that they have COVID. They understand that they're sick, but they're not accepting that it's that. Uh, and, you know, I, I feel the pressure from this, but I think it affects my nursing colleagues even more so. Uh, and, and people are tired, right? They're exhausted. So when on top of that, you have people that are being difficult about these things and, you know, challenging you and accusing you and, and basically treating you like you're a liar, or you're the enemy while you're just trying to help them and you're, you know, exhausted and have been on for 48 hours already. It, it really isn't helpful and it's contributing to the burnout. Uh, in the past waves, I had seen some of the hesitancy, uh, particularly around the vaccine, but there is something different about the fourth wave. And that people are just, they're angry. They're, they're mad at you. They're mad at the system. They're mad at everyone. And, and it's just adding to the stress in the hospitals right now. 
Yeah, and and I definitely would say that um, I think in rural, the idea of, of trusting in sort of common sense and the anecdotal experience tends to uh, uh, trump science in in many ways, um, which is highly problematic in terms of, of, of seeing um, their their response to the calls for immunization. And, and we're seeing um, some reduced rates in that. But one of the things I wanted to highlight is that, um, you know, there's all that anger, but in most of our rural sites, um, we have minimal to no security um, within our hospitals, which means when there are episodes um, that could be potentially violent or are violent, there's not that security um, down the hall. So that continues to be um, a real challenge and a concern for us about what that means for the safety uh, of all frontline healthcare workers across the province. Um. I feel very fortunate that my life experience has led me to have a strong belief in public health and a strong belief in medicine and science. And I get that that is not the life experience of a lot of people and proving to be a lot of people in rural areas. Um, I suspect there's a lot of fear and helplessness and, you know, mistrust of authority and government overreach. And there's just, it's become such an emotional topic for a lot of people, um, I think initially when this wave first kind of started to trickle up, it was easier to be hostile towards these patients. I mean, not outright, but, you know, under your mask to be like, well, this is kind of, there's an antidote, antidote to this problem and you just are refusing to take it. Um, but there is something very humanizing about listening to someone who doesn't believe in vaccines or COVID call their family and say that they're going to the intensive care unit to be intubated because they have been struggling to breathe for days and they know that they're on a maximum amount of oxygen. They're usually on their tummies um, with all of the oxygen on and they're not moving a muscle because if they move a muscle, they know that their oxygen goes down. So, I mean, I think they can come in and be a little bit hostile towards this isn't COVID, I have, you know, this is something else, that this is the flu, this is an allergic reaction to the antibiotics you're giving me or whatever the excuses start out. But that moment when they're being wheeled down the hallway prone with max oxygen on, I, it's very humanizing and I don't like it. Are people coming to you all soon enough? Or are you finding that in this wave, people are coming in later due to some of that hesitancy? I think people come in when they become short of breath. Otherwise, it's just a cold that they think their bodies can fight. But shortness of breath is scary. Like, you know, when you're underwater and you can't get your head above fast enough, like it's a, a guttural response. And so it's uncomfortable. And so people will come to the hospital when they're short of breath. Dr. Vanderbeer, are you finding that as well as you are locoming around the province? Yeah, I think you have two groups. You have a group of patients who come in at the very first signs of anything. They have the sniffles, they have a little bit of cough. It's, you know, 12 hours later and they're getting seen. Uh, and then you have the group of people that, yeah, have waited a long time. They've had symptoms for a week plus already. They're already getting pretty short of breath. Uh, and those people, you know, they go one of two ways. They're either at the point that you kind of figure they're at the peak, their oxygenation is good enough that you can send them home and they're probably going to do okay. 
But then there is a section of those that were very urgently either intubating or flying to the city to get to a higher level of care, to get intubated, to go to the ICU. Uh, the difficulty we've really been seeing lately, of course, is the capacity issues where we simply don't have beds. So people that we maybe would have been able to keep in the past, we can't keep in rural sites because we're over capacity. And it's different than when we talk in the city and, you know, you're at a big Edmonton or Calgary hospital where there's hundreds of inpatient beds. I mean, when you have a hospital that typically has 12 inpatient beds and they have 15 patients, that's a pretty significant, uh, you know, overage there, especially when you may not have your normal nursing staff, you may not have the normal number of, uh, of support workers around. Uh, so when these people come in sick, they come in quite sick and they can go downhill very quickly. And that's, that's scary for them. That's scary for the healthcare workers when you know, someone with COVID can go from five liters of oxygen to 20 in an hour and you're five hours away from a larger center. Before I bring on Dr. Lee to talk a little bit about what the province said relating to schools today, I would love to take an opportunity to send all of our folks at home um, your guys' final thoughts. So whether or not you're speaking to folks in Calgary and Edmonton about what the rural hospital experience is at the moment, or whether or not you are speaking to Albertans who are living outside of those main centers with you all, what do you need people to know at this stage as we go into Thanksgiving weekend, as rotating closures in rural hospitals take place and as 15 patients are filling 20 beds. Um, maybe I'll start with you, Holly, and then move through everyone. Um, I think I would say if you know a healthcare worker who is currently still showing up to their job at the hospital, send them a card, send them some flowers, send them some turkey dinner. It's hard to show up to work when you are run so thin and um, takes many hands to make an ICU bed an ICU bed. We can make a space for a bed and we can fill hallways and double patient rooms, but it's the staff behind those beds that make it an ICU. So physiotherapists and social workers, and we have amazing healthcare aides and the float nurses who are, have never been in ICU before, who have stepped up to the plate to come and help, just be helping hands. Um, truly, I see you, I feel you. This is hard, it's hard work and high five a healthcare worker. Also, please be considerate of all the healthcare workers and don't don't um, don't break the rules. Uh, yeah, well, what I would say is, um, you know, I particularly want to speak to anyone in rural Alberta uh, who's watching this, and to say that um, you likely know uh, a frontline. A healthcare worker. Um, they're probably um, either if you grew up there, you may have grown up with them or their kids go to school with you or you've just had an encounter um, with them and know that they know you as well and and they care about you and they want you to be well. And, um, and so they're going to do everything they can uh, to make sure you're okay. Having said that, right now, um, many of our um, rural hospitals are um, having outbreaks. They are overrun 
with sicker people than they're normally used to taking care of because um, a lot of the bigger centers um, are backed up. So they really do need your help. So please, 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 if you haven't been immunized, uh, get your shot. It is safe. Uh, and it is effective. Um, there, you know, there's no conspiracy on this. Global authorities right around the world have all come together and agreed um, that it's your absolute best chance and way safer um, than than your chance of, of getting the disease. Um, but also, um, please, uh, especially coming into Thanksgiving weekend, do your best to avoid being inside with people who aren't your your family. Uh, immunization isn't enough at this point uh, with the Delta variant, and we need to do what we can to protect our community because when you live in a small town we're all in it together and uh, and the healthcare workers want want you to be well as well i'd echo what my colleagues have said and of course encourage you to get vaccinated if you haven't been already uh this is serious it needs to be taken seriously anyone that tells you this isn't serious doesn't know what they're talking about uh do what you can to stay safe and keep each other safe try to avoid the social situations. Your healthcare workers, were here for you. If you need us, come find us. But we need your help with this one too. And that's going to be following the restrictions that are in place, encouraging your MLAs and the government to take the actions that they should have taken months ago uh, and doing your best to basically keep yourself safe right now. Thank you all so very much for being with us. And I know that you are beyond stretched thin. And the fact that you all care for Albertans so much that from your locum location, Dr. Vandermeer, to the hallway that you are currently in, Holly, to wrapping up your day early, Danielle, to be with us, and I know that means you will just have to go back to work as soon as we're done. Thank you. Um, your voice, your voices are ones that we haven't been able to have a lot with us. And it just, it means the world. So thank you for all that you're doing. I'm going to bring Dr. Wing Lee into our conversation. That way we can talk a little bit about some positive things, I think, that happened today um, with the press release or with the presser from the government, um, as well as still some room for growth. But as Dr. Vipon said at the beginning of the hour, there are some actual tangible things that would have been lovely to see weeks and weeks ago, but they're, at least they're here, hopefully soon, maybe, if they get in place in time. Hi everyone, I'm here to provide a few reactions to today's press announcement by the government, uh, including the education minister. So just in summary, we knew starting this school year that the public health response was dismantled uh, for schools. So that means it was being treated as pre-pandemic normal. Six weeks later, SOS uh, has monitored over 260 outbreaks with the newer definition of over 10% absent due to illness. So this is this goalpost was moved in September. Today's announcement, though, is a small step in rebuilding the bare minimum that we had last year. Uh, we did hear, perhaps for the first time, 
uh, in a year and a half, Dr. Hinshaw admits that children can and do transmit the virus. And that seems like a big step to those who may be listening from outside Alberta, but indeed it's been a fight that we've been trying to bring to the forefront of against the government that's been downplaying the impact on students and children. So that happened in the presser. The other announcements were the uh, contact tracing reinstatement. One caveat being that they're downloading to the school boards to do it until mid-November. So we know last year that this happened by default because contact tracing by the province uh, broke down several times. Our concern is whether that will be that will be resourced uh, properly by the school boards. So it is a step parents have been asking for is more notification uh, or notification in general uh, of cases in their students' class. So it's a lot to unpack, but in summary, it's it's a slow walk towards implementing what's necessary uh, as we're seeing the crisis that is outbreaks and high case spread within schools. Of course, we wanted to see more, uh, and it seems like we're always dragging uh, this administration to acknowledge the emerging evidence um, and do more preventative measures, which I was not hearing a lot of uh, announcement, announcing new measures like ventilation assessments, CO2 monitors, and we would have wanted to see more uh, proactive instead of reactive measures. And this is exactly why I need to have you here on days like today, so I can deepen my understanding of all of this as well. Um, I know this just happened today, but since they did talk about the fact that the government of Alberta map was going to be reappearing possibly in some fashion tomorrow, and that we do know that there is that movement towards contact tracing, um, I'm sure folks at home want to know if Support Our Students is going to be able to replicate um, something similar to what you guys did last year. I know that that was an exceptionally volunteer-heavy effort um, to update so many times a day, which you guys have still been doing with the um, respiratory outbreaks that you've been notified of. But do you guys, yeah, are you anticipating being able to go for it again for the rest of the 21-22 school year? I can't commit for the rest of the school year as this government seems to pivot uh, on how they're notifying uh, parents. You know, things change based on what they are doing and, and we've been trying to replicate based on what they're giving us. So in terms of documentation, we anticipate there could be more. Uh, submissions and we'll definitely do the best that we can given our volunteer base uh, because we we're here to support students and that means supporting with information that's publicly available and again we, we're waiting to see what the government will do in terms of the outbreak map it took on different variations last year so it could start out very basic uh, and then they could pivot to, to something totally different. So it's always a wait and see situation with this government, but we do committing, commit to doing what we can uh, given our resources in the situation. Thank you so very much. Um, hopefully 
Well, I would like to say hopefully we won't have to do this again, but hopefully you will be available to join us again when undoubtedly we will need your thoughts and opinions again. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Lee. As we say goodbye today, again, I would like to thank everyone for joining us. Um, and I want to briefly share a couple of things for everyone at home. Um, I know everyone watching has been looking for tangible ways to encourage policy that will keep us safe. Um, so I wanted to offer some additional possibilities to my usual call, beg, plead um, with those who can implement concrete changes. Um, first, I wanted to mention an invitation that was released by the emergency medicine section of the AMA, asking the Premier and Minister Copping to visit an Edmonton ICU this week. The beginning of the letter read, Dear Premier Kenny and Minister Copping, we've been told through the endless months of this relentless pandemic to keep our distance to stay safe. From the outside, where life feels almost normal, it's understandable to want to keep your distance from the unfathomable horrors we face in the hospitals every day. Maintaining distance is necessary to get through this pandemic. But when policy leaders maintain distance from the hospitals where policy is implemented, an adaptive mechanism becomes harmful. To break the disconnect, we urgently need you to see what we are experiencing. We would like to formally invite you to come to visit an Edmonton area ICU as soon as possible to see it for yourselves. From a distance, it is easier to look at numbers on a page and persuade yourself that there is still space because you can't see the maneuvering behind increasing those numbers. Surge ICU beds are metastasizing into every other part of the hospital, rapidly crowding out every other function our hospital should be able to serve. We are only able to find more space because many are dying and urgent surgeries have been postponed. The letter goes on and we will make sure that the Protect Our Province account retweets it as well as puts it up on our website. But it ends with, we need you to see, to hear, to understand what is happening in our hospitals right now. The distance between numbers on a page and the reality inside these walls is impossible to bridge unless you can see for yourselves what we have been trying to communicate to your government and the public. Alberta is at the edge of a precipice, but it is a precipice that right now only we can see. Please let us show it to you. So my first call of action is please let the Premier, Minister Copping, and Dr. Henshaw know that you as Albertans need them to go see an Edmonton ICU. They have claimed from day one that their pandemic management plan was based on protecting our healthcare system, a healthcare system that is in extreme danger, one that they're hearing about in council chambers, but not witnessing with their own eyes. They're elected to be our eyes. We need them to open them to the reality that is still facing this province. So please, when you pick up that phone or write them today, as I always ask you to, ask them 
to take the initiative to go see what we can't. Secondly, I would like to raise some awareness of www.popab.ca. Yay, it's exciting. On it, you will find our Safe Schools platform. Um, please send it to the trustee candidates in your area. Elections are coming up on October 18th and ask them if they will support the platform that the Protect Our Province folks have put together if elected. It has so many fantastic measures that really could keep our tiny humans safe. And so the candidates in your writing, you deserve to know if they are willing to do everything, not six weeks late, not two months late, everything possible to keep our students safe and give them a safe learning environment. So go check it out. Um, and also on pop.ca, you will find information about a Firebreak AB petition. You'll be able to access past content, and it now links to our Spotify channel in case you need to listen to one of our briefings on the go. So those are my calls of action for the day. We'll be back on Thursday. Stay safe, Alberta. As always, remember COVID-19 is airborne. Wear the best mask you have access to. And vaccines really do save lives.